listening to Ohio V, the world, an Ohio history podcast. The only podcast dedicated exclusively to the history of the Buckeye State. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and review us. Join the conversation now at Facebook. Stream and donate to the show at OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Alex Hasty. It's hard to tell now. Hey guys, welcome back to episode 10 of Ohio V the World an Ohio history podcast, and today we are talking about Ohio versus the Victorian age. And today we are going to be focusing on the incredible life. Um, I see her almost as like the Dos Equis guy, the most interesting man in the world. Well, this our subject today, Victoria Woodhall, was the most interesting woman in the world. During the Victorian age from Ohio, she lived a life in which she was a the head of the spiritualist society, a child preacher, an actress, the head of the first brokerage firm on Wall Street, the first female-owned brokerage firm. She was a leading suffragist, the first woman to address Congress, an author, a newspaper publisher, a presidential candidate, the first ever female presidential candidate in United States history in 1872. And she also ends up as an English noblewoman in the English countryside. She also spent, and we'll talk about how she got there, she spent that election day of November 1872 behind bars in a New York City jail. Victoria Woodhull is, I believe, the most interesting woman this country has seen in the first hundred years it was around. She was about a hundred years ahead of her time. She believed in things like free love. She believed in things like equality for women. Um, Not just that women should have the right to vote, which they would not achieve until 1920, but that women should be and are the equal of man. I can't wait to talk about all the stuff she did, but Victoria, we first started hearing her name after this, during this election cycle, Hillary Clinton wins the democratic nomination. And you kept hearing she's the first first woman to run for president. She's going to break the glass ceiling. Um, I still can't believe she didn't win, but, but really that's on her. You started to hear that she's the first woman to run, they would qualify, the first woman to run on a major party ticket for president. And that's because of Victoria Woodhull. I just read um, that Brie Larson, the Oscar-winning Best Actress a few years back, is going to produce and play Victoria Woodhall in a movie next year. Some screenwriter in Hollywood uh, picked up this story and said, you can't write this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's too crazy to be believed. Her rags to riches story, um, her upbringing, her parents, her crazy family, the Claflins, uh, her father, Buck, and her sister, Tennessee, Tennessee Claflin, who would be her, her sidekick and her partner through many of these adventures her younger sister, Tennessee, who we'll talk about today. Our guest for today's episode, um, we are lucky once again to have the help of the Ohio History Connection on this show, and we have their curator, um, all-around 
uh, woman's history buff Lisa Wood is joining us today. And Lisa is so great to interview. Um, she does an awesome job. She knows so much about Victoria Woodhall. I basically just asked her, so tell me about Victoria Woodhall. And I hit record and just let her go because she's she knows her stuff. She's so fun to be around and, and talk history with. I met her the first time I, I was invited to the History Connection. Um, I was having lunch. She came by, and, and I mentioned uh, we somehow got on the subject of Victoria Woodhall, and her eyes lit up, and 15 minutes later, she told me everything I needed to know. She debunked a lot of my myths I thought about Victoria Woodhall, um, and after that lunch, I was just so glad that she agreed to, to come on the show today. So she will be our guest today for Episode 10, Ohio versus the Victorian Age. Our beer for the episode today, um, we will be having... It's called a Cardinal Crusher. It's a lager. It's a Pilsner, I should say, um, from a female-owned brewery here in Columbus called Lineage Brewing. Uh, it's built into an old car, an old car wash uh, in Clintonville on High Street. Uh, Jess and Jessica and their husbands own this uh, really cool place. I went by, got a growler filled of their new kind of summer lager. It's not that heavy. It's perfect for a day outside. It's been so hot this week in June. Um, so go check out Lineage. They are lineagebrew.com. Um, and check out their Cardinal Crusher, their new Pilsner. Um, well, it's, it's seasonal, I guess, but it's really, really good stuff. We're going to be enjoying one today. Let's hit the Wayback Machine all the way back to the Victorian age. We're going to go back to the 19th century when the patriarchy very much ruled the day. And we're going to talk with Lisa Wood. It's episode 10, Ohio versus the Victorian Age. It's a bike race in Columbus. It's a bike ride, really. I ride 100 miles every year. From Columbus, we leave from Columbus Commons in the morning. We drive all the way, ride all the way up to Kenyon College in Gambier. Um, but the last stop, there's you know little pit stops with volunteers and water and food about every 15, 20 miles. The last stop is in a tiny little village called Homer, Ohio. And every time we pull in there, I'm just dog-tired. It's at about the 85, 86-mile mark. Um, and, you know, it's, but you know when you get to Homer that you're almost there. Um, check out my – you can always donate to my ride. It's, it raises money for cancer for the James Cancer Hospital here in, in Columbus, uh, pelotonia.org. Um, all my funds are matched by Victoria's Secret and Limited Brands. So if you want to look up Alex Hasty on the Pelotonia page and throw me five bucks – I would not be opposed to that. Shameless plug. But Homer's the end of the line. It's the last stop, and then you ride into Knox County. Homer, Ohio, is the home of Victoria Woodhall, where she was born September 23, 1838. In Licking County, uh, she's born to an incredibly poor, incredibly large family. She's born as Victoria Claflet. She's named after Queen Victoria, whose coronation was earlier that year. Uh, Queen Victoria, who the episode's named for the Victorian age, she would rule England from 1837 until her death in 1901. 
a 64-year rule marked by a religious fervor, an incredible growth and explosion of the British Empire and British ideals, but also that women were and continue to be in the background, the property of men, the ward of their parents, um, you know, almost spoken when spoken to. But Victoria Woodhall was destined to break that mold of the Victorian age. She's one of ten children, seven of which survived to adulthood, to her parents, Buck and Roxanna. Roxy, as she was known. Her father, Buck, was a major influence on her life. Her father was basically a con man. There's no other way to put it. Um, he was... He just he always was trying to come up with crazy new money making schemes. Um, one time he had Victoria at age nine when they still lived in Homer, Homer, Ohio. He had he went out of town and had Roxy and Victoria, nine year old Victoria, burn down his gristmill that he had just taken insurance policy on. And he rides back into town the next day and oh my gosh, what happened to my mill? He goes to collect the insurance. They find it to be arson. They don't collect on it. Buck Claflin. Um, one time he was caught making counterfeit money. And when he was confronted by the police about it, he just started eating all the money. It reminds me of, of Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia when he eats D's contract, rendering it <laughs> invalid. Um, he just starts eating the counterfeit money. This guy was... Um, in some ways, some of the stories are funny, but he was also a pretty, just a, not a good person. Let's put it that way. Um, Buck Claflin used his daughters to try and make as much money as possible. At some point, he had become, in Homer, the town mailman. And people s started noticing that they weren't getting certain letters. He was just opening letters and taking money out of them um, until that was discovered. But when he burns down the mill... It's one of my favorite stories of Victoria's youth. I mean, think about the how you'd feel about your family and yourself. They, she, Victoria helps burn down this mill in town, and the insurance company will not pay for it, and the townspeople in Homer are fed up, and they want the Claflins out of town. They've had enough of Buck's antics and the kids. <clears throat> the women in Homer organize a bazaar where they start basically a giant town-wide yard sale. They start selling things to raise money. And that money is going to be given to Roxy. Buck had to flee town because of the, of the arson claims. But the townswomen raise enough money. The only condition is that the Claflins have to take this money and never come back to Homer, Ohio. And they do. In the late 1840s, they leave Homer and begin moving around different parts of Ohio. We talked to Lisa Wood, our guest, about her childhood, about the family, and that experience growing up in Licking County. The Tilton, Tilton describes her parents and his description of her parents is a description that goes on, is, is perpetuated for years. Um, his words for it was, it is pitiful to be a child without a childhood. And I, I think that's probably a pretty fair statement. I mean, as one of seven children and one of the healthier kids in smart, you know, one of the healthier, um, brighter children of the bunch. I mean, her parents put a lot of pressure on her just to take care of the younger kids in the family, to do chores around the house. She spent very little time at school. 
Tilton describes Roxy as never wholly sane, and that's that's a description that you a lot of writers. Roxy's have, her, her mother. Yeah, Roxy or Roxana, yeah. or eventually Anna. At one point, <laughs> they thought maybe Anna sounded classier, so they started calling her. Class Anna. it up a little bit. Yeah, I I don't know if it I don't know if it matters. As Victoria becomes more and more involved in spiritualism, which was a huge movement in the mid eighteenth in the mid nineteenth century. This idea that there's something else out there and that you can speak with the dead through, through spirits and you can speak with them through a medium. And that was really what Tennessee and Victoria were. They were mediums to connect someone with their, with their dead loved one. Um, and there was a huge appetite for this in the country. And Tennessee and Victoria were both very good at it. Very young, but very good at it. We, we talked to Lisa just about this idea of spiritualism, how it appealed to Victoria, and how it worked, and, and how it would play such a huge role in her life um, in causing this chain of events that would lead to her becoming such a famous American. Tenny was much younger than Victoria, so he starts first with Victoria. Um, child preachers were a thing, tent, huge, crazy tent revivals, were a thing. Yeah, we're talking about the 1840s yeah, here. Yeah, in the 18. So Buck, Buck thought, huh? <laughs> my daughter's kind of cute. Yeah. She's got some personality. I could stick her up on a soapbox and see if people will listen to her. And and she did. I mean, Victoria. I mean, whether it was her spirit guides or you know she you know speaking through her or not, she she could captivate an audience did victoria i mean she truly believed she had these telekinetic and healing powers i mean what type yeah. of things did she you know she used he said sometimes it was convenient uh as an as when she came under a lot of scrutiny as an adult it it became a very convenient thing for her to say oh my spirit guides told me this or i had a vision of that right. um as a child but given the given the difficult nature of her childhood, I mean, just growing up in a large family in poverty and kind of the chaos that creates, I mean, it's not hard to see how how this the idea of spirits. I mean, you know, if her father just you know if her parents put these ideas about spirits into her head to you know so she would do you know she could preach about it to. Um, other people I mean it's not hard to see how a little girl I mean she was aware that they were poor she was aware that you know people in town looked down upon them that her family wasn't particularly normal or stable I mean you don't have she didn't have to be very old or you know to, to start to get that and so I think it's not hard to see how the whole idea would have attracted her the idea that these spirits speak through me and they help me and I'm special. As an escape almost. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I know my spirits are telling me that I'll be wealthy one day, that I'll be powerful one day. Um, and she was right. Um, yes. <laughs> Part of Victoria being able to heal people or prophecy something or unveil secrets. I mean, of course she claimed it was the spirits working through her. I mean, part of her being able to do that, I mean, whatever she did as part of her show or her technique, I mean, people had to believe it. Yeah. Um, and there, are, I think in, it's hard to know like where 
her faith in the spirits and other people's faith in the spirits and a, some amount of trickery. Um, where all that um, meets. Where all of it meets. I mean, the other, I mean, it, there were uh, secrets, not, I mean, later on, towards as the 1900s were on in the spiritual movement, um, it, it kind of dwindled. It had a high point, then it starts to dwindle on. You know, in the late 1800s, they come up with all sorts. They figure it out. I mean, people was like, "How did, how did the 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 seance? You know, during seances, there was always rapping. How did the you know? Yeah, there'd the, be a noise. How did the spiritual ladies make the noise? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of ways to make the noise. You slip the servant girl a few cents, and she'll stand downstairs in the broom. cellar and pound a broom on the floor. <laughs> or you can, under your many layers of clothes, you could put little wooden knockers on your knees and knock your knees together mm. and nobody will notice you doing that when you're wearing three layers of skirts and you're sitting in the dark nobody will see you tap your knees together and and the fact that a lot of the spiritualists were women isn't too surprising because again writing was one of the more socially acceptable ways women found to express themselves spiritualism was another way women found they could express themselves because in because they weren't doing it the spirits were speaking through them so it kind of gave them a little cover for <laughs> self-expression and public expression god forbid a woman has some public yeah. expression god forbid a woman had something to say unless <laughs> you know unless she's writing about domestic issues like yeah. Catherine beecher or unless she's spirits are speaking through her like victoria you know you sometimes women needed cover for expressing themselves and spiritualism gave them you know, there was a lot of emotional comfort there for people. And then there was also, for women, this opportunity. Victoria's Mary's Canning Woodhall, the drunk fake doctor who botched her first childbirth and caused her son to be severely mentally handicapped for the rest of her life. He was in his late 20s. He met Victoria because he was, he was a traveling doctor. He was her doctor. And he married, she married at 15, which is crazy to me. But those types of things happened in the 1850s in some of these kind of Western frontier states like Ohio and Indiana and Kentucky. But Victoria's wedding, she basically ends up leaving her husband and she moves out west um, and she becomes an actress in California. She works at a bar. She, she does all kinds of things, but she decides she moves all over the country and eventually comes home to Cincinnati. We ask, uh, we ask Lisa just briefly about those years and how she decided to come back to Ohio. She doesn't person. seem to ever hesitate to hop a steamship or <laughs> a stagecoach or a tra eventually trains. Yeah, no, she, <clears throat> she, she moves around. When she was in California, um, 
she had one of her great visions. She was acting. Um, one of her job, one of her, she she always had such talent for. It's not hard to imagine her acting. I yeah. mean, really, this person has such great talent for self invention and storytelling and charisma. The idea of her acting actually makes perfect sense. It does. Um, so she was acting in California, and she was up on stage in some pink silk costume doing her thing and she claims she had a vision of Roxy mom Roxy and her sister Tennessee telling her come home come home come home so she does Canon and little at this point little Byron in tow and um, I think they're in Cincinnati maybe at that point the, yeah. the Claflins yeah so she heads back to Ohio shortly after the war while in St. Louis doing her spiritualist thing Victoria meets a colonel, a colonel by the name of James Harvey Blood. Colonel Blood, who believes in a number of progressive thoughts, they meet, and by the second they meet, it's actually Blood and his wife go to meet with her. And after a few meetings, it ends up just being the colonel who goes to meet with her. And after a few more meetings, Victoria and the colonel run away. They leave St. Louis. The colonel leaves everything behind, including a large debt, which he would later have to come back and pay. And they run away. Colonel James Blood. She never used the name Blood. She used her first husband's name and then eventually her third husband's name. She never actually used the name Blood. Um, there is there, there was some speculation that maybe their marriage wasn't legal in this end you know there was a marriage certificate filed in a courthouse somewhere um but in the sense that they were very much partners i mean that that they were residing together and you know whole family crazy whole crazy family along for the ride but yeah i mean functioning as a married couple yes in the sense that they publicly presented themselves that way and worked together the beautiful woodhall sisters victoria and tennessee uh, she went by Tenny for short. Um, she would actually go by Tenny C, with the, the, the capital letter C abbreviated like her last name, Claflin. They moved to New York City in 1868. And upon arrival, they end up knocking on the door of one of the richest men in the world, Cornelius Vanderbilt, known as the Commodore. Commodore Vanderbilt, who, as I said, one of the wealthiest men in 1860s, 1870s America. One of the original uh, industrialists. He built the railroads, which turns out is pretty good to make some money. But the man was one of the richest people in the world. But he also, as a widow, as a widow, he had a a certain hunger for spiritualism and for the magnetic healing that Tennessee and Victoria could offer. They knock on his door. And they begin providing those kinds of services to him. They start showing up every day. Um, and the Commodore does not send them away. The Commodore develops a relationship with Tennessee, a sexual relationship, probably 50 years older than she was. But they basically move in with Commodore Vanderbilt, the richest man in New York. Um, and this is where their lives take a change. We ask Lisa about the Commodore and about how the move to New York changes everyone's lives. In most of Tennessee and Victoria's relationships with men, it's always speculated if 
if they were sleeping with them. In this case, it was Tennessee who was suspected to have a sexual relationship with Vanderbilt. I mean, he was a, a much, much older man. He would have been decade, several decades older. I'd say, yeah, um, probably 40 years, I mean, She was years. in her 20s, and, and he was... I get he was getting 70s maybe much older so it's pot I mean it is certainly possible um that that was a factor in in the relationship but the fact that their their work is mediums to help him communicate with the dead was is is pretty is a pretty agreed upon thing you know what other directions the relationship took are you know are less Less certain. I mean, it, but it's very, very possible. <laughs> in the case, of, in the case of Victoria and Tennessee, this is it is very possible Tennessee was sleeping with. Them. And Tennessee's very beautiful woman, also. I mean, I think men very much desired her as well. I mean, just like Victoria. It was very interesting because they really part of. I mean, their it was part of it was their looks, but part of it was just their style. They had a tendency to wear shorter skirts, and by short, I mean sometimes you could see their boots under their skirts. They'd shoot I mean, the flash an ankle. Yeah, they they were known to once in a while. Well, they would have been covered up by their shoes, but yeah, a flash of foot underneath a skirt. Oh my gosh! They were. Um, they Victoria sometimes wore hats. She preferred to wear more like men's hats mm-hmm. than you know fancy bonnets. Um, sometimes they would have jackets cut more in a men's style. Like they had these matching velvet suits that were kind of, they were skirt suits, skirts and jackets, but you know, they were cut in these more form fitting, like masculine styles. And that's what they wore on the day their brokerage opened, you know, and they had their little men's caps with their pens tucked behind their ears. And I mean, they just, it was, there was also, there's also style, but they were definitely presenting themselves. They were wearing clothes in a way that really. They pushed the envelope for the 1870s. Yeah. They just, they, they had their own, they had their own style. Tennessee in particular, um, often, often wore clothes that had more, more menswear inspired clothes. She was Annie Hall, you know, more than a hundred years before Annie Hall (laughs) came out. Yeah. That's a good Diane Keaton reference. I didn't think we'd talk about her. Victoria finds an opportunity. She is hanging out with Vanderbilt and Victoria knows a little bit about finances And she starts learning a lot from the Commodore about the stock market. And more importantly, the commodities trades, the gold market. And in 1869, the country suffers what's called the Panic of 1869. It's brought on by gold sales and short sales and government insider trading uh, involving the Grant administration. But basically, the price of gold goes way up and goes way down. Um, It's called Black Friday. Some 25 people in New York City committed suicide after Black Friday. It took months for the stockbrokers and the exchanges to even untangle everything that happened on that Friday um, with the gold market and with the stock market. But that Black Friday and that panic of 1869, thanks to the advice and thanks to the economic might of Cornelius Vanderbilt, the Commodore makes nearly $700,000 that he gives to Victoria Woodhull. 700 grand. Back in those times, I don't know how much that is. I don't even have the math, but it's millions of dollars. He gives her about half of what he made from all those short sales and the gold exchanges. And with that money, 
she and v, she and Tennessee are basically set up, and they come up with the idea of, hey, let's start our own brokerage firm, female-owned, Tennessee and Victoria, um, open their own Wall Street brokerage, the first such brokerage in the country. They're backed by Vanderbilt, and on opening day, nearly 4,000 people flood the doors. We ask Lisa about this incredible moment when Victoria Woodhall becomes a major player in Wall Street. You know, the day their brokerage opened, thousands of people showed up. Um, so it's it's pretty much assumed that Vanderbilt was the, you know, bankrolled uh, a good portion of it. To the extent that he bankrolled it, again, you don't know, but it's pretty clear there was some he financial certainly, He certainly gave them some of that information that made them a success. Yes. The financial information. Yes, I mean, it's probably exchange of information. I mm-hmm. mean, you know, you they would have needed, even with the spirits speaking through them and Tenny's, you know, great clairvoyance, they still would have needed somebody with more knowledge of business to, to help them get started. Part of the idea of the brokerage is that it could be a place for women to come. Because women did, you know, women did sometimes, you know, inherit money or earn money. I mean, um, it wasn't women had no money at all. I mean, there were women that did, particularly in a place like New York. And, it, and they kind of tap into this untouched market of female money. That's that's one of the things. Yes. That- Yes, like women who might have their own, some of their own income or some of their own inheritance to invest in some way don't necessarily have a place to go. They're not going to march down Wall Street all by themselves into a male brokerage where everyone is smoking and spitting and drinking and cursing and <laughs> they're the only woman in the room and they're going to be stared at, and, you know. Um, but if you went to woodhall and claflin's you could be ushered into a back door into a a comfortable parlor where you could you know discuss your financial needs with a like-minded lady In 1870, the brokerage firm is going great. Victoria's got plenty of money, and her marriage to Colonel Blood turns her into more of an activist. An activist for things like workers' rights, but certainly for women's rights, and most notably for women's suffrage. She starts a newspaper, a weekly newspaper, Woodhall and Claflin Weekly. They, they had to be one of the first women to own a newspaper, although suffragists like Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who would become friends and colleagues and eventually enemies of Victoria Woodhall. They have a weekly paper where they were the first people to publish Karl Marx, um, the Communist Manifesto, the first people to, to talk about things like free love and women's equality. Uh, the newspaper sells pretty well. And it's an incredible outlet for them. And it gets them into a whole new world of activism and and a world of of the suffrage movement. We talked briefly with with Lisa about the suffrage movement um, and what was going on in 1870 when Victoria Woodhull crashes the party and tries to become a leading voice in the American women's suffrage movement. 
1840s, 1850s, the run-up to the civil to the civil war, the suffrage movement is very, very active. The crisis of the war was gigantic, and really, suffrage work came to a crashing, crashing halt. After the Civil War, you know, the 14th and 15th Amendments are introduced towards the end of the war, which are supposed to guarantee citizenship and voting rights for Africa, for the newly freed African Americans. There were some that espoused this great idea, we need to unite, and these amendments need to enfranchise all women and African Americans. They, they, we they need to enfranchise all of us. And there's an organization, the American Equal Rights Association that forms, but it's not a sustainable coalition. There, there's a big split. The American Equal Rights Association doesn't hold, and we end up with the American Woman Suffrage Association, which is based loosely around Boston, and then the National Women's Suffrage Association, which was kind of loosely based more around New York. In reality, there's a lot of social overlap, social overlap with these groups. Um, but the American Women's Suffrage Association is more conservative, um, and the National Women's Suffrage Association is a bit more liberal. Um, the American Women's Suffrage Association is led by um, Lucy Stone, her husband, Henry Blackwell. Mm -hmm. She did not go by Blackwell. Um, and then there was, and the Beecher family. Well, the National Women's Suffrage Association, that was um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Right. They were not conservative people either. They were far more conventional people than Victoria Woodhull. And being middle to upper middle class, you know, just they led more conventional, like, you know, lifestyles. Um, but they were, they were not conservative people either. Um, and it was actually, it was, it was that group. It was National Women's Suffrage Association. It was Stanton and Anthony who, Victoria, Victoria caught their attention. Victoria becomes acquainted with Benjamin Butler, a senator, a former general, um, in the Civil War, and Butler gets her a spot in f to speak in front of the Judiciary Committee, on which he is a member, and he's going to speak to her them about women's equality and how the Constitution in the 14th and 15th Amendments uh, that helped enfranchise African Americans to vote, this idea that also they should enfranchise women to vote, and that it is in the Constitution that women are allowed to vote. And but women need to just simply go and take that right. That as citizens of the United States, they are allowed to vote. This speech really catches the eyes of Susan B. Anthony and the suffrage movement and those two different suffrage organizations we mentioned earlier. Victoria Woodhall has arrived. She is the first woman to address a joint session of the Judiciary Committee of Congress. And ultimately... Her bill is voted down, um, her idea that to try and get you know, a constitutional amendment to allow women to vote. It doesn't pass. It doesn't get out of judiciary. Um, but on January 2nd, 1871, she once again made history and spoke before the Judiciary Committee in the United States Capitol. She claims, of course, that, you know, the whole, that it was all preordained by the spirits. Um... The reality of it, however, is uh, General Benjamin Butler, 
um, Civil War general who is elected to Congress after the war. Um, He's a senator from yeah. Massachusetts, I think. Yes. Um, he is... Uh, he is a fairly progressive individual, and he is a women's suffrage supporter. And it is believed that you know he was. It, it, what we think is that he just invited her to talk. <laughs> um, he thought, um, you know, I mean, Susan B. Anthony was sitting right behind her when she gave the speech. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, um, Victoria was just. I mean, she was only thirty. 32, 33. She was in her early 30s at that time, so she was much younger. She wasn't someone who had been associated with women's suffrage for decades. So it was kind of a shot in the arm, I mean, to this this movement that was fractured and squabbling about things, whether should men be members? Should we pressure Congress? Should we work at the state level? They were squabbling about a lot of tactical things and Victoria's argument was so simple and so novel. And, I mean, she just went in there and said, these amendments guarantee us the vote. All Congress has to do is recognize that, write something, pass a law, go for it. Maybe President Grant will sign it. At, for, for a brief period, um, 1870, 1871, she's a bit of a darling of the suffrage movement. She has money from her brokerage to donate. The suffrage movement was always hurting for money. It was always an issue. Um, you know, how to fund speaking tours, how to print newspapers, how to do, you know, pay to get people's attention. Um, was always, always an issue for the suffragists. So Victoria walking in and writing a few big checks, I mean, they appreciated that. But Victoria gives a speech. Her and Tennessee, they were known, especially Victoria, for giving these speeches and getting hundreds of people to show up. She has a huge speech about free love at Steinway Hall in New York. Um, We talked with Lisa just about what her concept of free love, Victoria's concept of free love. It's a little different than than what we consider free love these days uh, or that 1960s idea of free love that was so popular. Um, We asked her what the speech at Steinway Hall um, and how she's almost, she goes off the, she goes off the, uh, she goes off the speech written by Stephen Pearl Andrews, her, her kind of her advisor, um, her spiritual advisor, and, and she goes off the cuff and makes a speech that, again, makes her live in infamy as a free love advocate. People still tie that to her today. And although it is somewhat true by 1870s standards, um, this set her apart from the, the suffrage movement and really helped finish off that break. Uh, between Susan B. Anthony, uh, the Beechers, and people like people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton that no longer wanted to deal with the distraction that was Victoria C. Woodhall. The 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 free love issue is huge. This yeah. is where the whole the whole I think her falling out of the suffrage community, the the free the. Disagreement. There was the, a lot of disagreement about the free love well, yeah, issue, let's, let's and then talk also just the run for the presidency itself. So you know, she's labeled as a free love advocate, but her idea of free love is not what we, you know, know from the 1960s. The idea of free love, uh, the you know, the 1960s interpretation. What does Vicky mean by her advocacy of the free love, and how is that just so radical to people, not just men, but also people in the suffrage movement, that it kind of sets her apart. Well, she 
she gave a speech in November 1971 in Steinway Hall in New York. And that's kind of the, I mean, she talks about free love in a lot of different um, channels, but it was that probably that Steinway Hall speech in the fall of 1871 that really kind of stood out as, as the free love manifesto, the principles of social freedom. And she starts with this long history of, you know, the relations between men and women in the history of marriage. But what people really wanted to know, and the reason thousands of people packed in, first there was this possibility that she might convince Henry Ward Beecher to show up and introduce her, and he didn't. But there was also just, you know, people finally wanted to hear her say, like, how do you define free love? And there had been a speech, supposedly one of her, one of her spiritualist colleagues, Stephen Pearl Andrews, had tried to write for her a measured speech, you know, a politically calculated speech, a speech that might not seem too out there. Um, yeah, that didn't go. She, mm-hmm. she, go, she went off script and she had family members in the audience peppering her with questions and the whole thing went, the whole thing went pretty, pretty fantastic, pretty fast. But I mean, basically she says, yes, I am a free lover. I have an inalienable constitutional natural light, right? To love whom I may, to love as long or as short a period as I can, to change that love every day if I please. And with that right, neither you nor any law can frame have any right to interfere. The idea is basically you don't, you don't have to stay in a bad marriage. And she was in a bad marriage. She grew up with a bad marriage. And then she was in a terrible marriage with, with Canning Woodhall. Um, where, you know, she was a teenager and he was more than a decade older and had severe drinking problems. So, you know, yeah, the idea that because you went to, stood before a minister or filed a certificate in a courthouse that says you are going to live with this person for the rest of your life, like it or not, ready or not, that's another that's another aspect of it women's having rights in a marriage as well um and the right to divorce being yeah, one of those rights yeah and so i think like with the conservative suffragists they just again they were so focused i mean they wanted to focus on suffrage they had conservative they had a conservative message they used to sell suffrage and this really doesn't fit this really doesn't fit. We start talking about women having equal rights in marriage. We start talking about fair divorce laws. That's another track. And that's so much more socially disruptive. And we'll never get suffrage passed if we're, you know, we're riling people up talking about divorce laws and marriage equality and stuff like that. Um, I mean, and you didn't have to do, other than saying people should have the right to get divorced, that that was enough to to label you free love. In 1871, Victoria Woodhull decides to run for president of the United States. The women's suffrage movement has moved away from they will not be her backing party. She ends up aligning herself with a party called the Equal Rights Party. The Equal Rights Party and her select Frederick Douglass, the famous abolitionist, former slave, 
as her running mate. It doesn't appear that not only did Douglas never accept this nomination as he supported President Grant during the 1872 election, but he also, I don't think, ever met Victoria Woodhull. She picked him because she said he, he embodied the ideals of the, of the type of ticket she wanted. Um, was it that serious of a presidential run? Not really. Lisa explains um, how the balloting system worked. I mean, parties printed the ballots. So the Republican Party printed a ticket and the Democratic Party printed a ticket. And you went in and you said, I want to vote the Republican ticket. And you give, they gave you the ballot and you dropped it in the Republican box. And so, you know, with the Equal Rights Party being, um, not being, you know, the most well-organized <laughs> political nation, party, not, not having, yeah, yeah not, there, it's not a nationwide party with a nationwide organization. So at most, it's, I mean, it's possible that there's, you know, some ballots could have been cast for her, perhaps in New York, but there's just no record of how many well, ballots and, were Well, and cast. the other thing, you know, I think... Uh, even some of the ballots that may have been cast for, they just didn't even count them um, because, you know, the people at the polling place deemed that she was an illegal candidate. Um, she wasn't 35 yet. She correct. would have turned 30. She would have been 35, like, just short. I think her birthday would have been, like, right before the inauguration or something. So yeah. she she was, yeah, there was that question of age, um, which is... Um, so there was there was a legitimate well, constitutional and she's question. also she's also in jail the night of of the eighteen seventy two presidential election, yes. which I've got to think is our first presidential candidate to be incarcerated during the election. I, I can't think of anyone else. No, I, no <laughs> one else is coming to my mind either. But the election of eighteen seventy two saw President Ulysses S. Grant incredibly famous Civil War general from Ohio. Mind you, we'll do some episodes on him in a later season, our presidential season, uh, coming up in a year or so. Grant is running for re-election. Um, he's a very popular person. His presidency is going okay, mired by a couple of scandals, including the, the gold issue we spoke about earlier and the Panic of 1869. Some other things members of his cabinet and others in the government were doing was starting to come to light. His opponent was a liberal Republican who was backed by the Democratic Party named Horace Greeley. Greeley was the editor of the New York Tribune, one of the country's most famous papers. And Greeley was of the mind that this, the country needed unification, that the war was over, um, and that the occupation, this is during Reconstruction, mind you, the occupation of the South should end, states' rights should prevail, and... And that was his main movement. He obviously got huge support in the South. Um, and he aligned himself after being selected at the 72 Democratic Convention in Baltimore. Um, he aligns himself with some pretty questionable groups. And Grant goes after him for it. But in this whole election battle between Grant and Greeley in 1872, in the background is Victoria Woodhull, the country's first female presidential candidate and on election day in 1872 Woodhull doesn't win in fact it's said that only a few thousand people voted for her, even though there's no way to prove the balloting that was done as most places simply didn't count her ballots um, and some places just destroyed the ballots that were turned in for her 
Grant wins. It's a closer election than some thought, but Grant wins a pretty sweeping, about 3.6 million to 2.8 million votes. Um, and he wins, uh, he wins handily in the Electoral College, two, uh, I think 286 to 66, if I'm looking at that right. Um, he only wins six states, Greeley. He wins Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Texas, Missouri, and Maryland. Um, six pretty staunchly Democratic Southern-leaning states. But Victoria Woodhull, the other candidate for president in 1872, wouldn't know those results because the Sunday before the election, she was arrested and thrown in jail in New York City. Victoria Woodhall was a celebrity. But she begins falling out of favor. She's already fallen out of favor with her suffragettes. Um, and across the nation, back in the day, there's a man by the name of Thomas Nast. I'd almost describe him as a 1860s, 1870s uh, Stephen Colbert or John Stewart. He was a political cartoonist. The original Daily Show of back in the day were the cartoons of Thomas Nast that would show up in political satire in newspapers across the country. He is, was and still is the most famous political cartoonist. He made some, some drawings about Miss, Miss Woodhall in the run-up to the election, including one where she's dressed in black, holding a sign that says, Free Love, and it says, Get Behind Thee, Miss Satan. She's seen with, with you know, almost horns in her head. Um, the country had turned against her ideas. And again, she's way ahead of her time. She's, I don't know, 50, 100 years ahead of her time. She was just born in the wrong century. Um, but when Thomas Nast turns around on you, um, she knows that things are going to be difficult for her. Another person who turns on her is a man by the name of Henry Ward Beecher. The preacher, uh, brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, um, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Henry Ward Beecher is arguably one of the most famous people in America in the 1870s. His Brooklyn megachurch, his preaching of love, and his Gilded Age theories of you can have it all, God wants you to have it all. This spring, Miss Ohio versus the World and I, we met some friends, um, Jared and Sarah, and we, we actually started walking around Greenlawn Cemetery in Brooklyn. Uh, it's a great cemetery, all kinds of Famous people, especially 19th century famous people there. Um, and I left the group for a while. They couldn't find me. I was trying to find Henry Ward Beecher's grave. And I thought it would be this giant mausoleum, but it really was pretty modest. We'll put a picture of, of the gravestone. I got Jared to take a picture of me at, Mr., uh, at Henry Ward Beecher's grave. We'll put a picture of it up as part of this episode. Um... But he was a formidable force. Just because he didn't have a giant gravestone, uh, don't be fooled by that. This was one of the most powerful, one of the most influential men in America. And Victoria Woodhall decides to take him on. 
She has this complicated relationship with the whole Beecher clan. Um, and she's, but she had tried. She thought, you know, in this more progressive male preacher, she might find an ally that would lend her respectability and give traction to her, you know, her presidential bid and her other, you know, endeavors. And um, he ultimately rejected that. I mean, just ultimately, whether he, you know, whether, however he felt about what she was saying, he was not going to publicly align himself with her as a political ally. So, you know, she's, I guess she's feeling a little desperate toward, by that point in time, you know, right before the election. And it's pretty clear to anybody paying attention that if, you know, the chance, the snowballs chance in hell she had. Well, the snowballs are, are melting. You know, it's it. But she, I think this gives credence to the idea that she always thought that this could happen. I think she really believed it could happen. But she wants to make, get attention, and she wants to attack back against just all the criticism from so many different areas. So they print an issue of Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly. Um, there's an article about Henry Beecher and affairs. He he was rumored to have a lot of affairs. <laughs> um, but there was one particular affair with the wife of Theodore Tilton. Tori is alleging an affair with Theodore's wife. Yes, she's alleging an affair with Theodore's wife. That was one thing that was printed in that, that issue. But if that wasn't enough... Victoria and Tennessee always take it a step further, and they print a second article in that newspaper. And this is probably what have this may be the thing that really, really sunk everything. Um, they there was another a stockbroker type Luther Chalice was his name. Mm-hmm. Tennessee pens a very graphic story about him, and an orgy and the debauchery and prostitution of two underage girls. And, um, it sounds pretty sensational by any standard. I mean, by, by any standard, it's not, it was a pretty sensational story. So. It's stemming from a party in New York that that they were all at. Yes. Yes. That it happened a couple years before they printed it. Actually. Yeah. By 1872, this party had happened a few years earlier Mm -hmm. And also the Beecher-Tilton affair was alleged to have happened a few years before they wrote the story about it in the fall of 1872. But the, these papers of Claflin and, and, and Woodhall papers start selling like hotcakes. I it mean, does. It does. They can't print it fast enough. They, it, was good they, it was good they earned some money because they needed it for bail. Victoria, on November 2nd, her newspaper comes out. She calls it the Great Washing Day. And it tells about the affair between Elizabeth Tilton and Henry Ward Beecher. And it gives detail. And it's an interview, basically, I'm assuming by her. But she acts like there's a question and answer. It's an interview with Victoria Woodhall about the affair. And she cites her her sister, or Beecher's sister, Isabella uh, Beecher Hooker, and cites... uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton as sources. She has letters, letters that back up this this affair, which did happen, by by the way. Um, but it's incredibly damaging to someone like Henry Ward Beecher. Um, and some very powerful people in his church decide to do everything they can. These papers are selling like hotcakes. They print 100,000 copies 
of the newspaper and they can't keep them in stock. People can't stop reading this gossip. Uh, there's other stories about other people in New York uh, doing same or similar things. Victoria just had enough of the hypocrisy and she put it out there in print. But in 1872, to print something like the National Enquirer today was unheard of. And many believed it to be illegal. People like Anthony Comstock. Comstock's the man who does end up arresting Victoria Woodhall for sending obscene things, uh, materials through the mail. He has them mailed to him. Comstock was a, a warrior for purity and, and uh, he's incredibly against sex of any kind, really. Um, there's a great Thomas Nass, the political cartoonist we discussed, has a great cartoon where Comstock's arguing in front of a judge, Your Honor, this baby was born naked. Um, and that's why I'm charging. You know, he was against any kind of lewd behavior. And he sees someone as Victoria Woodhall as a danger to our country, our moral fiber. And he arrests her. And he has her arrested multiple times for distributing obscene materials through the mail, for libel, for all kinds of... And she'll thrown in jail for 30 days at a time. When she gets out, she starts giving some speeches about the truth. Um, again, that same trip to New York, my wife and I were at the New York City uh, History Museum, and we saw they had a, a whole section to civil disobedience. And we saw a pamphlet, and we'll, I'll put a picture up of it, of a Victoria Woodhall, Tennessee Claflin uh, speech being given in New York right after she got out. These were m attended by thousands of people. In fact, at one speech in New York, the cops waited in the back until she was done. Miss Woodhall stepped off the stage, strode to the back of the, of the lecture hall, and they took her out in handcuffs. She was being arrested on and off uh, for months into 1873. Her trial, um, in which she is ultimately acquitted of all charges, uh, but it bankrupts her, it bankrupts Tennessee. Uh, the strain on her marriage to Colonel Blood is too much. They basically separate. And Victoria Woodhall, the first female president, is basically penniless again in New York. Her house is taken away. Her newspaper no longer operating. Her brokerage firm closed. Her friends in the suffrage movement having deserted her. Victoria Woodhall hits rock bottom. You know, they get arrested. They have a hearing. They pay their bail. And eventually, I mean, there's a point when even if you don't, like somebody or agree with what they say, being repeatedly arrested for the same crime and not being charged, it gets to be a little ridiculous. And they'd spend 30 days in jail in, yes, in New York yeah. jails, yeah. Yeah, and they were the jails were known to be awful. Mm -hmm. So eventually, by, by the time Comstock runs out of reasons to invent to arrest them, they've had to pay very heavy bail fines and... They are stretched thin. They're having trouble finding a place to rent in New York. Um, at, you know, blood, Colonel Blood and Victoria's relationship is getting very strained. I mean, you know, things, I mean, so, and this goes on, you know, through it. the legal, the legal drama just continues through 1873, 74, 75. I mean, she arrives in New York around 1868 and by 1872 is already fallen out <laughs> with everyone. So, I mean, her Position in New York society was never more than. It is know, crazy how much all this happens in you know yeah. really five, five years. I mean, yeah, all of this so happens much. in a you know in a period of like five six years, and then um, 
then through a great stroke of luck, she yep. and Tennessee, they decide to go to England. Victoria Woodhall had accomplished so much. All those things that we listed earlier, all those things that she had done, spiritualist, actress, head of her, you know, president of a, the first female brokerage firm on Wall Street, suffragette, author, newspaper publisher, presidential candidate, the first female presidential candidate ever. Um, she had done all that in a matter of only 38 years. But Victoria Woodhull would live to be 87 years old. And although those other years would be quieter, everything changed in 1877 when Commodore Vanderbilt dies. And he leaves behind an incredible fortune. And he bequeaths a good portion of that fortune um, to Tennessee and Victoria Woodhull. The Vanderbilts, the, one of the most powerful families in the world. And he, the, their children challenge it, but it's upheld. The will is upheld. The Commodore gives Victoria and Tenny a new start. We asked Lisa about the second act of Victoria Woodhull's life um, and when she finally leaves America to find the happiness she's always sought. This is one of those parts that's like, this almost sounds too good to be true, but this part really is is true. She yeah. inherited a pile, she and Tenny inherited a pile of money from Commodore Vanderbilt. Vic, uh, Victoria ends up married to a very wealthy English banker, and Tennessee is actually a Viscountess. Yeah. She becomes royalty. She's married to a Vis. she becomes the Viscountess. She's Lady, I can't remember what Lady it, Cook. Lady Cook. And Viscountess of Montserrat. <laughs> That's an impressive title. It is. That is a very impressive title. If you've watched enough Downton Abbey, you will know being a Viscountess is a big deal. <laughs> Your sister will be really jealous if you marry a Viscountess. She doesn't. Their lives in England are relatively quiet. Um, I mean, Victoria, Victoria can't help but you know, try to introduce herself to the British suffragists. She can't help but, you know, start writing again. Victoria Woodhall lives to be 87 years old in England. And at age 80, in August of 1920, she sees the passing of the 19th Amendment, allowing women the right to vote. One of her great life goals is accomplished. And it's accomplished by people like her. People who took action. Action speaking louder than words. We talked to Lisa Wood about that legacy that Victoria Woodhull leaves behind. The most interesting woman in the world. How she took on the patriarchy at a time when doing so as a woman was unthinkable. How she reached incredible heights and how she did it. Action speaking louder than words. And if there's any lessons in Victoria's life, about the battles for women's rights that go on now, for equal rights. The Women's March the day after President Trump's inauguration. Victoria Woodhull would have loved that because it was action. It wasn't just words. It wasn't just Facebook posts and comments on a, on a newspaper article. It was real. It was tangible. She took the fight to everybody. 
We almost called this episode Ohio versus everybody because that's almost what it was. But she defied the Victorian age. And we asked Lisa uh, how she did it. I love this statement. She just says, all this talk of women's rights is moonshine. Women have every right. They only have to exercise them. Um, I mean, if only that had been true. Or when she talks about, you know, in response to the brokerage, we are doing more daily for women's rights by practically exercising the right to carry on our own business than the diatribes of papers and platform speeches will do in 10 years. Um, I mean, she had a good point. I mean, she had a very good point. You know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, they loved writing their newspaper and they loved giving, you know, the speeches. You know, and she was saying that, I mean, she was saying that around 1870, you know, actions are going to speak louder than words. Go out into the street and do your thing. Don't sit at home and wait to get the vote before you think you can start exercising rights. Go out and do it. From Garfield's tomb to the serpent mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading Tippecanoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading Our book recommendation today, we have two actually. There's two books I think are very good about Victoria Woodhall. The first being The Scarlet Sisters. It's by Myra McPherson, a journalist. Um, it's from 2014. It's a more recent novel. I find it to be a little more factually accurate uh, than our other book. Um, but it focuses a lot on Tennessee as well as Victoria. It is about the sisters. Um, but it's a great book. I would recommend getting it. The Scarlet Sisters by Marlet, uh, Myra McPherson. Also, we read a little bit longer book, um, a little bit older book, but I also found it to be incredibly interesting. And that was Barbara Goldsmith's Other Powers released in uh, 1998, I believe. Um, Goldsmith, uh, called Other Powers, The Age of uh, Suffrage, Spiritualism, and the Scandalous Victoria Woodhall. She goes into developing a lot of other characters, especially Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, Henry Ward Beecher, um, the Tiltons who are involved in the Beecher affair. Um, it even talks about the trial in which... Uh, Tilton and Beecher go to trial about about the affair. Um, that was later in 1876. Victoria is even called as a witness um, in that very, very famous case in, in the mid-1870s. This after Victoria's name has already been destroyed for sharing the details of that affair. It ultimately all came out years later, and she was vindicated. Uh, but Other Powers is a really good book. Check that one out. That's where we got started with Barbara Goldsmith. Um, and Scarlet Sisters is a little faster read, but I really, really enjoyed that as well. So a special thanks today to Lisa Wood of the Ohio History Connection. Again, it's ohiohistory.org. Uh, if you got kids, they got a great thing called the Ohio Village you can go check out. All kinds of interactive stuff. 
um, for your kids here in Columbus to go look at. Um, and they also manage all kinds of historical sites uh, across the state. So if you're in another part of Ohio and you want to see where you can uh, see other history in your neighborhood, just go to ohiohistory.org. They've got a map with all the dozens and dozens of historical sites that they manage. Um, and they've been a huge help to me, and Lisa was awesome. We're definitely going to have her back on a future episode, so I very much appreciate it. Um, so that's going to do it for episode 10. I want everybody, again, special thanks to our theme music from Forest in the Evergreens. It's their song Try uh, that we play the intro to. Uh, we really appreciate We will see you guys next, probably in about two weeks. Uh, we are going to interview David Mowry, the author of Morgan's Great Raid stay in this 1860s, 1870s time frame. And we are going to learn about General Morgan of the U. It's going to be Ohio versus the Confederacy when the Civil War actually comes to Ohio. Two battles fought here in the Buckeye State as the Confederacy reaches its northernmost point of the war. We'll look at Morgan's raid and author David Mowry next week in Ohio versus the Confederacy. That'll be episode 11. So rate and review the show. I've had some people have issues with reviewing the show. I've really found the best way to do it is to actually do it on your laptop. If you're talking about an iTunes review, those really help us shoot up the charts. Take the two minutes to let people know that you love the show. Share it on your Facebook. Go to our Facebook page, our Instagram, Ohio V the World Podcast. Um, and check out all our pictures, we'll, all the historical sites we go to, and the people we interview and the subjects. Um, we'll put a lot of cool stuff up there uh, in the weeks and months to come. So thank you guys so much. It's awesome to share another episode with you about Victoria Woodhall, the amazing, amazing, scandalous Victoria Woodhall, um, the original nasty woman. So we will see you guys next time for Ohio vs. the Confederacy. Take it easy. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, and I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.